Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. I have a very special guest today. Very excited to share this with you. If you are like my wife and I, for the better part of 15 years, most Tuesday nights, you tune in to the Rick Mercer Report, hosted by my guest, Rick Mercer. Part travelogue of our beautiful country, part news satire, part sketch comedy. He even like golfed with Ann Murray. He climbed at the top of a roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland. And yeah, he skinny dipped with Bob Ray. You'll find out how that happened a little bit later on in the show. Oh, and don't forget the rants, his minute-long diatribes about well, whatever was on his mind that week. Those really wove themselves into the fabric of Canadian culture. Then, after 15 years, he quit the Rick Mercer Report, a job that he called the best job in the world, when it was at the peak of its popularity. Why? Well, stick around. I ask him that later on in the show. After that, he did stand-up, and then COVID-19 struck. In lockdown, after four books based on content from his television shows, he began writing the most personal story yet, his story. The result is the revealing and hilarious memoir called Talking to Canadians, a memoir, and it's available now wherever you buy fine books. So stick around. We talk about everything from why the critics called one of his first shows, and I love this, We Have No Pity for the Audience. We talk about how he turned down a big money offer to head to the United States to host a game show, and why his drama teacher told him that quitting the high school drama club would be one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Here's Rick Mercer. When you settle in to write a memoir, uh, do you do it off the top of your head? Do you have to research your own story? Do you do interviews? Do you revisit photo albums? Uh, how does it work? You do all those things, but the first thing you do is you Google how to write a memoir, <laughs> which is exactly what I did. And uh, I read a couple of, I have a low, uh, you know, low attention span. So if the article was like seven pages long, I was like, I don't know. I want this in point form. Just tell me how to do it. Nine bullet points. And uh, they did say, uh, you know, don't think of this as a chronological exercise. Just pop all over the place and then worry about putting it together. But I couldn't make that work. So I started writing chronologically and I just kept writing like that until my editor finally said, OK, that's it. You've, you've done a book now. <laughs> but along the way, I did consult old friends and I did have to research. And I was very fortunate that a colleague of mine for a big chunk of my career kept copious notes, which I didn't. And he, he was gracious enough to uh, give me access to those notes. So the, it, it's a bit of everything. Are you one of those people who is always only looking forward to the next thing? So once you've done oh, something, yes. then it's over. Yes. And it's yes. I and mean, I'm not a reflective person. And I've been fortunate that I haven't had time to because I've been really fortunate. I've always been working. Yeah. I've always been working uh, at pretty intense jobs and, you know, going at a pretty intense rate, moving forward on to the next thing, on to the next thing. So this was a big change for me that. The project at hand was about looking backwards and reflecting. And yeah, that was a big, big change. Well, you say you're not a reflective person, but I've read the book 
And I think whenever you you write a memoir, if you're sitting down to write about yourself, it can't simply be a retelling of, and then I did this, and then I did no. this, and then I did yeah. this because who cares? Uh, yeah. But you have to have a, a, a deeper purpose. And I took away a couple of life lessons from the book, and, and let me oh. run them past you and see oh. what you think. Well, and- I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> with well, myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. As well, you should be. So uh, let's talk about We Have No Pity. This was a three-hour right. show that you were a head writer on. And what I loved about this is that you write about the, the failure of that show. Critics called it We Have No Pity for the Audience. And what I, <laughs> what I took away from that story was that you must learn from every time you have a step back. You've had so much success in your life, but I think that it seems to me like you've learned more from the setbacks and maybe the failures in your life than you have from the huge successes. Oh, I think so. And I think that that's not entirely unique. You know, I was once, I was once lucky enough to sit around a table with a group of very prominent Canadian business people who, you know, had accomplished huge, huge things. Right. And they were all kind of bragging a bit. And then I brought, then I brought the expos to Montreal. Then I did this, then I did that. <laughs> and I said to one of them, like, what were the biggest disasters? And then the room came alive and they all had stories to tell that were fascinating, but they all learned important things. And that's certainly the same in show business. You learn from your failures and nobody, and, and you can't shy from them. I mean, I could have easily not mentioned that I was responsible for not only the longest and the biggest failure, but the most expensive play in Resource Center for the Arts history. But I, I'll take it on. You do learn from your mistakes, and uh, and also you have to you've got to roll with it. Like if you if you you know, if, especially in show business, you're going to go out there on stage and you're going to deliver that line, and it's just going to land flat, and you're going to be like, "Wow, I really thought that was going to work," and boy, did it not. And you got to make a decision then. Are you going to keep going or are you just going to go and lick your wounds? You're listening to my interview with Rick Mercer, author of Talking to Canadians, a memoir available now wherever fine books are sold. I also took away a lesson of uh, perseverance from this book. You never seem to give up. And uh, it seems to circle back to a drama teacher that you have named Lois Brown, who... At one point when you were in one play and then you said, nah, I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, that would be a mistake. Was that, I know yeah. it sounds, she, you were very young, but was that a turning point for you? Oh, I, again, I didn't really think about it until I was writing the book. And I mm-hmm. thought back to that day. And what happened was I was going to quit the drama club. I wasn't in the play. I was working backstage and I just thought I have no interest. And she said, that would be a terrible mistake. One of the biggest mistakes of your life. She was an eccentric person. And I thought, okay, I'm I'm dropping an after school club. I mean, give me a break. And I said, why would it be such a big mistake? And she said, well, the next play we do, we're going to bring to the Provincial Drama Festival. And I said, well, what's the play? And she said, I don't know. You haven't written it yet. Wow. No one had ever suggested that I write a play. Uh, And then she put this group of people together that many of whom today, as young people, you would call them at risk. Mm-hmm. Just this group of people, and she said, we're going to write a play. And we we collectively wrote a play. We had a punk band in it. We made fun of other schools. It was very, it was raw, but it was funny. It pandered to the audience. And we won the drama festival and we went to the, to the provincial, you know, championships and stuff. And it was a turning point for me. I never stopped doing it. It was that weekend at the drama festival that my buddy, Andrew Younghusband and I said, like, let's start a comedy troupe and let's get famous. Like, 
That's the way we were thinking. And and there was a bunch of people in that show that, uh, you know, Ken Tizard, who ended up just got inducted into the, the Western Music Hall of Fame, member of the Watchmen. You know, my buddy Don does sound design for Stratford shows and the National Art Center. There's so many people have had creative lives that came out of that show. And uh, Andrew Young, husband who hosted, you know, Canada's Worst Driver. And, uh, you know, on, on Andrew's Facebook bio under education, it says School of Lois. And uh, <laughs> I feel the same way. What do you think it was that she saw in you? I don't know, but she was always encouraging me to do creative things. Like when I talked about how much I like magazines, she would say, then you should start a magazine. Mm. <laughs> really? And then I did. I didn't know any better. <laughs> I said to my buddies, hey, let's start a magazine. Um, you know, she was always encouraging us like that. And, I, and, you know, she's a tremendous artist in her own right. And I was just lucky that uh, my couple of years in high school coincided with her couple of years deciding to get a straight gig and teach. Because since then, she left. She left soon after I left and went on to be a, an actor and a dramaturge and a filmmaker and all these different things. What uh, do you think it was that made you think that you could one day become famous? Was it watching other people on television and saying, well, yeah. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. Oh, we were so silly. Like me and Andrew, were like we'll start a comedy troupe. Uh, we'll start doing shows. I guess then we'll go to Toronto. And I guess to Rivoli, is that where we go? Because that's where kids in the hall were. And then you get a TV show. I think Lauren Michaels will come see us. I think that's the way it'll work. And then we'll get a TV show and then kids in the hall will be gone by then. And so will Codco and we'll just fill in. That's the way we were thinking. I mean, it obviously didn't happen that way. We were broken up before we ever had a chance to go to Toronto, but that's the way we were thinking. Yeah, I, I've had a few people. Mark O'Brien, who's a, an actor from Newfoundland. Sure, of course. Uh, yeah, and he's now having such great success, City on a Hill Tremendous. and all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and he said that was it for him exactly. He saw people on television. He knew he wanted to be an actor. And he said, well, why can't I? Sure. Like, and and he, he's a bit he's a bit lucky, just like I was lucky. People had done it before. Like, you know, uh, Gordon Pinsent existed. Yeah. You know, and Gordon Pinson, when I was a kid, my grandmother would say, someday you'll be up there with Gordon Pinson. Um, but that was it, because he was the only guy anyone knew. But he went away, went to Toronto, went to Hollywood, was in movies, was in TV shows, came back, made a movie. So, uh, you know, the road was paved for us and for Mark O'Brien. You know, he knew people who from Newfoundland who had careers, and uh, that makes all the difference in the world. What do you hope people take away from this? Well, for, uh, hopefully, first off, I hope, uh, you know, they have fun reading it and they find it funny because everything I've ever done uh, on television, the TV projects, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, this is important or that's important. I never cared about the important thing. I cared about it being funny. So that's the most important thing to me. The thing that I realized is that in all of our lives, you can you cross paths with people and they can be people that are in your life for 30 years or three years or three hours. But occasionally you cross paths with someone and it and it changes your life. It changes the trajectory of your life. And sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad. But certainly I've had some incredible, incredible breaks and uh, and, uh, you know, come across some pretty incredible people. And uh, that's one thing that that I realized in looking back. I always knew I was lucky. Now I'm also grateful. Lucky and grateful. That's me heading forward. In this segment, we begin by me suggesting that you make your own luck. Let's see what Rick Mercer has to say about that. Uh, yeah, you know what? Yes and no. Like, you know, I, I worked really hard on my first one-man show. There's no doubt about it. I mm -hmm. worked harder than I'd ever worked on anything before. And it was a hit. But it was a hit in a small theater in Ottawa. 
you know, with 60 people watching and getting lots of the media attention. But it, it, elsewhere in Canada, another one person show is opening with a very good playwright and a very good star and a very good director, but a very complicated show. And it didn't work. It's too technically complicated. And that show collapsed under its own weight. And that show was scheduled to play right across the country. And suddenly major theaters at Factory Theater in Toronto, Vancouver East Cultural Center, Ottawa, uh, Great Canadian Theater Company in Ottawa, all these shows had six weeks six week holes in their schedule. And I just rolled in. Like that's that's stupid luck. Now yeah. I had the show ready to go, but that's stupid luck. And and that tour led to me being in the room when Twenty Two Minutes was created. So if it wasn't for that poor schmuck show, you know, failing for no fault of his own, it happens every day in show business. It's happened to me. Um, I don't know what would have happened. So yeah, you make your own luck, but sometimes it happens to you. You talk about people that have affected your life, whether that's three minutes, three hours, three days, or 30 years. Um, your husband, Gerald Luntz, is one of those people who, oh, yeah. it, 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 you say, the quote here, you owe him more than anyone else. What is it about his influence that has really uh, helped you so much in the last uh, well, 30 years? The first time I met Gerald, he was, uh, he was uh, preparing to bring Kathy Jones's One Woman Show across Canada. And he needed two Cracker Jack technicians who knew exactly what they were doing and uh, in order to make this work. And Kathy hired me and another young actor by the name of Sebastian Spence. Sebastian was a hard worker. I wasn't. I knew nothing. I didn't know how to do anything. Gerald figured that out within minutes and wanted me fired. And Kathy wouldn't fire me because she's like, he's funny. And Gerald's like, who cares if he's funny? Can he work the follow spot? Does he know how to work the projector? Can he swap out the audio? You know, anyway, so he, 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 we didn't get along. A couple of years later, he came back to St. John's and I was by then had put that behind me and I was doing comedy. He would come to the comedy shows. Uh, we began a relationship, but then he was given the opportunity to bring a one person show to Ottawa. And he, he asked three people, uh, all of whom said no, because there was less than six weeks. And I didn't know any better. I said, yeah, sure. That sounds like a lot of time. Yeah. And I went and that was the show and uh, he edited it and directed it. And He's been editing everything I've ever done since and producing. I mean, he produced, he was a producer 22 minutes. He was there in the room when we created the show. He's one of the creators and he's the executive producer of the Mercer Report and the showrunner. And he's always made my jokes funnier and he's always improved my scripts and doesn't get any credit. So, you know, what are you going to do? And, and how so? Is it just, I, I've read where uh, he would look at the rants which were so crucial to the show. These are things that people are going to be talking about for days afterwards when they aired, if not weeks. Um, and, and he would help hone them down. Yeah. And, and do you have a tendency to overwrite and he brings it back or how does that work? Well, I would overwrite and then I would keep reducing, reducing, reducing. But when I got it to 90, where I felt it was 90%, I would give it to him hmm. and uh, we would fax it. We would another email, I would fax it out of the office. And then I'd sit there and I would wait and the fax would come back. And sometimes half of the rant would be gone. Like the first nine lines with the lines would I'd be like, oh, but I trusted him. And, uh, you know, more often than not, he was right. And I do believe people need editors. Mm -hmm. And I think the more successful people get, they start to believe they don't need editors. And, uh, 
you know, he's just always been my editor, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. You're listening to my interview with Rick Mercer, author of Talking to Canadians, a memoir available now wherever fine books are sold. And he makes me laugh, right? It's a, it's a it's a very good creative relationship. It's yeah. it's an odd one because I'm out front, and and he doesn't want anyone to know who he is. But it's almost like, you know, Elton John and what's his name, Bernie, Bernie Toppin. Yeah, Toppin. No yeah. one can pick him out of a lineup. But <laughs> what he does is very important. But Bernie, you know, but Elton wears the flashy suits. I'm Elton. I'm You're Elton. Elton. Yeah, that's right. Did you learn uh, through that and then possibly during the writing of Talking to Canadians that the art of writing really is in the rewriting? Yeah, but I've always believed that. I've yeah. always believed that. And uh, this, interestingly enough, this project is the only time Gerald wasn't involved because he said, this is your story. Mm. You write it. You bring it to me when it's done. And that's when I did, of course, then he got out his red pen, but mostly he just fixed jokes. He didn't, right. he realized it was my perspective. Everyone has a different perspective, yeah. of course, especially when you're going back 30 years. Um, so uh, it was unique that way as well. But yeah, you always got to rewrite. You always got to rewrite. I read I read this, uh, an interview with Steve Merton when I was about halfway through this project. And he said, when he's, you know, in a bookstore and it's years past, he's published a book, he, he sees the book, he picks it up. He opens it and reads a sentence. And he says, if the sentence is not perfect, if, if, if there's any way I could improve that sentence, then, you know, I'm in a bad mood for the rest of the day. And I told my editor that and he was like, good God, don't ever do that. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> it's terrible. And, but I thought, oh, right. You know, you only get a few shots in a memoir. Yeah. And if I'm going to walk by this, you know, 20 years from now, and I pull it out and open it. I don't want to read a sentence that, uh, or a paragraph that depresses me. I want to laugh. That's what I want on that page. I have changed uh, lines in my book uh, from printing to printing. So in, yes. in some of the, the books that I've written, something will just be eating away at me. And yeah. you know, as we get close to selling out a, a printing, I'll dash off an email asking, can I just please move that oh, sure. semicolon? Can I, you know? Oh, and, I've and already I've done sent it. four. The book has been out for three days. I've already sent four emails like that. <laughs> I was like, I didn't need that word. <laughs> so I know. looking uh, at your life in its totality, I guess, writing a, a, a memoir like this, when you are a private person, made me wonder about uh, why it was that you were so private for so long about your life. And I wonder if it was because as a comedian, you didn't want people having opinions about you, getting to know you that well, because it would color their uh, reaction perhaps to your life or your politics oh, sure. or something. Oh, sure, 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 sure. That's a big one, especially if you're a political commentator. Mm -hmm. uh, you just don't want people to know that much about you. I mean, yeah. I was obviously from Newfoundland, but past that, what do they need to know? really. And uh, I always thought that. I mean, I never shied away. I mean, you know, when the when the anti-bullying initiatives began and I became part of that, I talked about, you know, being a gay man. And I thought it was important that, uh, you know, some kids in this country could go like, hey, look at that guy. He's got a big TV show. He's gay. Because I remember when I was a kid talking to Andrew Young Husband, my comedy partner, we were like 15 years old in high school. Of course, I was in the closet. And we're in the suburbs where he lived. And he pointed at a house and he said, you know who lives there? I said, who? And he said, Carl Wells. Carl Wells was the weatherman for CBC. He was a superstar. You know, he'd be at the, the opening of a picnic or the opening of an envelope. He'd be everywhere, right? And uh, he said, yeah, he lives there with his husband. I never even heard anyone say that about a guy. 
And he's like, oh yeah, sometimes they come over mom and dad's and have a drink. And I was like, wow, Carl Wells is gay. He's on the CBC. Huh. That gave me a huge amount of comfort. It really yeah. did. So I, I wanted to make sure that I at least was that guy. But uh, I'm also just a private person. I didn't really mm-hmm. want to dive in too much. And then you have other people like Gerald's a very private person and he's a private citizen. And my parents, they don't, they don't like this kind of business. And, and so you just, uh, you just, you know, learn to keep it, <laughs> keep the private life private. What then was the most difficult part in writing this? As you are going back and looking at all the material, were there things that you left out? Were there things that you wanted to put in, but didn't? Well, it's funny. Uh, the things that you leave out, I was, uh, I was doing an interview about this book, you know, just the other day. And someone said, uh, you know, you never went to the United States. And uh, I I said what I usually say, that I certainly don't begrudge anyone who goes to the States, because, of course, it's the largest English language market in in the entertainment world. Of course, people go there. I said, I was just lucky, you know, because I, you know, my show led to 22 minutes, such a good gig. What was I going to quit that job where I was writing and starring and, you know, to go to the States? And then I said, plus, I had the chance to host that game show, uh, uh, The Weakest Link. And he said, you, you, you were offered The Weakest Link? And I was like, yeah. And he said, why isn't that in the book? And I thought, geez, I never really thought about it. I guess it didn't interest me at the time. And yeah. I don't consider it a, a pivotal moment in my life or what have you. So it's interesting what you do include and what you don't include. Um, you know, I wanted to focus on fun and fun times. And I realized I've had a really good time because I was on hit shows. And there's yeah. nothing greater than being on a hit show. <laughs> better than being in a stinker, I tell you. <laughs> you know, when I did No Pity for the audience, you know, after after night three, when we were having the discussion, do we still do the show if there's fewer people in the audience than in the cast? That than was no stage. fun. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 22 Minutes was a, a much different show when it was originally pitched, right? Well, oh, you, sure. Yeah. And it, yeah. Tell me about that because you weren't convinced. That it was no, going to be it, successful. No, I well, I you know I, I was very inexperienced. Mm. I didn't know if you could take four people uh, who are completely different individuals and put them in a in a room and uh, create a TV show. And plus, by then I was really off the whole notion of the collective, mm. which is you know where everyone has an equal say. You know what kind of way? <laughs> how, how do you run anything like that? Um, but uh, you know we got the show, but then we found out that. No, it wasn't just a show about the news with me and Mary and Kathy and Greg, but there was this proposal that the CBC greenlit. And when I read the proposal, it was like there was going to be a band and they were going to sing a, sing a song every week. And there was going to be a guest host, a celebrity, and they were going to be in sketches. And then me and Kathy would do a monologue off the top. It was like a low rent Saturday Night Live with no money. Um, so I was really worried. And we got in that room and we started hashing it out. But as luck would have it, we created this show because we had no money. And when everyone says that, oh, we had no money, we literally, there was no money. And so all we could have was a news desk. That was it. I mean, I was always fighting for the news desk. But the reason why we just ended up with a desk was because that's all that we could afford. And we couldn't afford a band. And there was no room to do live sketches because the studio was so small. So out of necessity, 22 Minutes was born. And we had to shoot on location because there was no room to shoot indoors. Um, 
And the day it, it the, you know, the, the day I watched the first episode was the greatest day of my life because it was so funny. And I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest show ever. I love this show and I'm in it. Like talk about, yeah. like, I don't think I've ever experienced a feeling like that since. I love the idea that uh, because there was no money, you had to be creative and figure it out. Terry Gilliam told me once that in the original script, for um, the Holy Grail, that there was going to be King Arthur and his men coming up over the hill, and they were all going to be on horseback. Uh, but they only had, I think, a million dollars to make the entire thing, and it was going sure. to cost twenty grand to get the horses there. So he said, "Well, put them on, you know, broomsticks, and then they have the coconut shells yeah. making <laughs> the clomping <laughs> sounds, right?" <laughs> and he said, yeah. "If I had, if I had had money, he said, I totally would have spent it. Had them come up over the hill on horseback, sure. and no one would remember that scene." No, because the the clip clop, clip clop, clip clop to be revealed as they come over the hill. Yeah. And then you see they've got that is one of the most enduring comic images yeah. in the Monty Python world, you know. And you're right, if it was just them on horseback, who cares? You're listening to my interview with Rick Mercer, author of Talking to Canadians, a memoir, available now wherever fine books are sold. That was the thing about twenty two minutes, like we Greg and I want to do a hockey sketch. Well, we couldn't afford a hockey net in the corner of a of, a, of a, a studio because there was no room. And so we'd say, well, we'll go out and uh, we'll just shoot on that pond over there. So instead, we'd stand on this frozen pond with snow coming down. It looked like a million dollars. I mean, yeah. it was ridiculous. And we had such great access, you know. And uh, But, you know, one of the great, talk about out of necessity, I mean, Mary Walsh appears in the first episode of uh, This Hour's 22 Minutes, not on the desk but in bed as Mark Delahunty, because she was physically in bed. She was uh, preparing for back surgery. I mean, the woman might as well have been in an iron lung. Yeah. <laughs> we had to have her in the show. The show was sold on her back. And so she, not only did she create Mark Delahunty, for the first bunch of appearances, Mark Delahunty was so depressed with the state of the world and what was going on in Ottawa that she had gone to bed and couldn't get out. And that's why she was in bed. And again, a lot of people to this day, when they think of Mark Delahunty, Yes, they think of Marg, Princess Warrior, running mm -hmm. around, but they also think of Marg in bed, just can't get out because it's just all so grim, right? That's exactly the same thing, out of necessity. I love that. And the Mercer Report, I was surprised to find uh, from reading it, and I've heard you do some interviews where you've talked about uh, how it wasn't as planned as I thought it was. Um, you, you and Bob Ray jumping uh, naked into uh, a, a lake um, happened more or less on the spur of the moment. I would have thought you cannot that... you cannot call a politician, say, will you come on a fishing trip where we'll we where we will get naked? That's right. On That's TV right. while you're running for the leadership of the Liberal Party. Right. That happens spur the moment or it doesn't happen at all. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. was it nerve wracking for you? I mean, sometimes setting out, knowing that you're going to have to figure out the show as for you sure. go. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there was a person that I really, really wanted to work on the, the Mercer Report, both Gerald and I did. And when they when we explained to them what we were doing, he said, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I was like, why? And he was like, it can't be done. He said, it just can't, like, you're going to, you alone are going to travel to do two different places in the country every week. And you're going to create two separate segments that are going to air. Plus you're going to do sketch in the studio. And plus you're going to, you know, do a rant every week. He said, you're just taking on too much. And, and what happens if you go to talk to this lobster fisherman PEI and you get fogged in? 
Or what happens if the piece is no good? What are you going to do then? We we're like, I don't know. And uh, he said, you know, he predicted in the first 12 weeks, we would fail to deliver a show. And, you know, we went on to do hundreds of shows. We never, ever failed to deliver a show. But it was nerve wracking because when you go to PEI or Graham and M or, or wherever you're going, you had to get a piece. So if the weather bones you or the or quite often people might exaggerate, they'd say like, oh, there'll be this, this wonderful thing happening. We'd show up and go, where's the wonderful thing? They'd say, well, this is it. Yeah, you that thousand pound pumpkin is only, is only it's just, it's just a regular pounds. pumpkin. Yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, well, those things happen, believe me. But you have to make it work. That's why I love Jan Arden so much because one of the biggest crashes ever was in, we were in Calgary and I can't remember what it was, but whatever we were going to do just fell apart. And we were so desperate because we needed like six minutes for the show. The only thing, we had no time. I was like, I guess it'll be, I'll do a tour of Calgary. Then I was like, who the hell am I to tell the country what, you know, what Calgary's like? You know, I have no voice of authority. And so I called Jan Arden, who I didn't know. And I said, will you do the show and give me a tour of Calgary? She said, yes, yes. She said, hang on, let me get my calendar. And, and she was like, okay. So next month, and I was like, no, no, I mean today, Jan. She's like, today? Where are you? And I gave her the address. And she said, hang on. And, you know, literally 20 minutes later, she Love pulls her. up in this car. And she gets out and she goes, I thought of a bunch of things we can do. I could show you the, the zoo. We'll go backstage and feed the animals. And there's the, the Calgary Olympic Park. Um, maybe we'll get on a bobsled. She started saying all these things. I was like, Jan, you just can't show up in an Olympic Park and say, can we get a bobsled? You can't walk into a zoo. Like, this needs, oh, no, it'll be fine. And everywhere <laughs> we went, oh, Jan, come in. And it was one of the greatest pieces and she saved my life and then she did many, many times after that. When I think back on the Rick Mercer report, hundreds of episodes, really complicated show going across the country, things must have gone wrong quite often. So I asked him, did you ever have a segment that went really sideways? Here's Rick Mercer. We never failed, you know, we, and, and uh, it, it, I don't mean that, but it's like, you know, it was TV without a net. Mm -hmm. That's what it was because it was live every week and I wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, that was just so exciting. But it was a bit nerve wracking when you sat back and thought about it. But uh, it was a lot of fun. When I think of the Mercer Report, I always think of you being in zero gravity on a little carpet looking as though you were riding a magic carpet. By the way, the most fun I ever had in my life was that really? six or seven minutes of zero gravity. And in fact, if you realize, I don't say, I say very little in that piece. I can't stop laughing. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to do gags, but we, you know, we were looking up like, have, have people done gags in zero gravity? And not really. They, uh, you know, experiments, you know, <laughs> this is the way it works, kids. So we we're like, okay, so the water goes like that. So I spilled water all over the place. And, and then the, one of the inspirations was when Homer was in space, remember he opens the chips and oh, the yeah. chips float all over. And we were like, that would be great. But then we're like, we're basing this on a cartoon. We don't know if the chips are going to, like, just because it's in a cartoon. And sure enough, I opened the chips. And it was just like in the cartoon. The chips floated around. And one floated into the cockpit. And the, the pilot went, hmm, hmm. oh, it was great. But when it was over, here's this, like, Canadian science plane. When it was over, the plane landed. And it was all, we're on the ground. And gravity's kicked in. There was, like, Gatorade all over the wall. Chips everywhere. Potato chips everywhere. It was like the Rolling Stones had to play for a, for a world tour or something. <laughs> and they were saying to the scientists, well, thank you for giving us the ride. Yeah. They all came in. 
we, we, we took care of the cleaning bill. Yeah. How do you say no to a 16th season of the Mercer report when people wanted you to continue, but you felt that it was enough? I was worried that we were running out of steam. You know, I always said, we'll never run out of things to do, but I was starting to worry that we might, and that suddenly I would, as that other individual predicted, be at a loss to deliver a show. And I just thought, you know, that would have killed me. And, you know, certain things were changing. One of the big reliables that we always fell back on was what we called host and peril. Right. And uh, it's one thing to have me jump out of an airplane, but so uh, I stopped having the desire to do things that were dangerous and uh i mean we took safety very seriously but you know at one point i i tore my acl uh but it was in a toboggan accident like a literally on a toboggan and it happened to be on a ski hill so there was like 10 orthopedic surgeons there skiing and they're all lying or you know standing around me in this this ski lodge and i got my pants off and they're poking and prodding and they all come to the conclusion that you know, my ACL was torn. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. It can't be torn. They're like, it's torn. I was like, I fell off a toboggan for God's sakes. How is that even possible? And they said, well, how old are you? And I said, 45. And they were like, that's how it happens. <laughs> and then I went, oh, I got to start being careful about things that I have to do. And I just, it was a long time. It was time to, to wrap it up. I wonder if you also found uh, in interviewing people that people are, that you're interviewing are more closed down now. There is less spontaneity. Was that something you found in the political world? Yes and no. Like I was grandfathered in. Like people trusted me. I will say that. Uh, and a lot of that, you know, people shortening interviews, being less available, that all comes from them being afraid that they will say something that will get them in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I think they trusted me. And sometimes with politicians and with civilians, uh, with me, they would suddenly blurt something out that could be very damaging to them professionally or personally. And I just wouldn't include it because they were trying to be funny and they just like blurted out something about Thunder Bay or something. And you're like, dude, you can't say that on TV. <laughs> Certain people would put it on, I wouldn't. Uh, so I think they trusted me. And uh, so I didn't really have that problem. But I tell you the difference of being in the opinion business in the last couple of years changed dramatically. You know, we we had a philosophy on our Facebook and all that stuff. We didn't care if someone said, you're not funny, or that's a dumb, you know, about the rants, or that's a dumb opinion, or I disagree with you. But in the last couple of years, we had to have someone hired uh, whose job it was to uh, remove the really aggressive threats and the the notion that you shouldn't be allowed to say that and we're going to have your show taken off the air and, and you should be fired yeah you should be, yeah and it wasn't it wasn't we disagree with you anymore it was like you have to be stopped and then there was all and you know i was never worried but it the tone certainly changed you're listening to my interview with rick mercer author of talking to canadians a memoir available now wherever fine books are sold the book Rick Mercer talking to Canadians, a memoir is a love affair with creative endeavors. I think particularly mm -hmm. television. Um, what is it about the medium that has kept you interested? When I fell in love with TV, TV I was watching a CBC television show called The Wonderful Grand Band. Mm -hmm. And that was a comedy music show that was produced in Newfoundland just for the Newfoundland audience. It was a huge hit, you know, 80% of the audience population would watch the show. Everyone would talk about it the next day. The stars were the biggest stars in the universe. 
the stars of Dallas were in second place. Then it was, you know, the wonderful grand band, uh, huge impact. And after that, I didn't know I wanted to be on TV, but if anyone was like, I want to be a, you know, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a soldier. I'd be like, why would you want to do anything other than TV? Not necessarily be in it, but, you know, work in that world. And, uh, it was the most exciting thing that I could ever imagine. That said, I don't find it particularly exciting now. Um, you know, the greatest moments of my life were when we had the sitcom Made in Canada and I would show up on set and there would be Jenny trucks and yeah. trailers and crews walking around and people yelling in a walkie talkies and stuff. Now I'm walking down the street and I see that. I'm like, I shudder. <laughs> oh, those poor people. Look, they're on a set. What time did they get here? Probably 4.30 in the morning. And... TV itself has changed so much. Yeah. I mean, look, did you, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, I'm in TV, you're in TV, that we ever thought we would be doing TV like this. It's much more difficult, I think, to interview and have, you know, a real rapport with the person you're interviewing when it's electronic and we're sitting in different parts of the city. And it's really tough when you don't know the person. Like, I know you, you know mm -hmm. me. And so, uh, you know, initially there's a level of comfort mm -hmm. that, you know, you can get very quickly when you're in person next to the people. But yeah, when you're flat screens, I've had people email me that watch me on reruns during the pandemic. And they're like, man, watching your show is so weird during this pandemic. He said, like, you know, you've hugged like 30 people and shaken hands with 100 people and you're only 10 <laughs> minutes in. And it was a very tactile show. Yeah. And, you know, one of my tricks uh, always was, no matter who I was talking to, is I would take my arm and make sure it was touching their arm. And it was, uh, it was just, it's just a, uh, you know, we're all in this together. We're nice and close. And you want to be close anyway for the TV frame. Yep. But that that's a big part of how you establish the relationship right off the bat. That was my interview with Rick Mercer. He's the author of the brand new memoir, Talking to Canadians. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. Now, Rick and I spoke for about an hour. You heard most of that conversation and we barely skimmed the surface of what's in this great book. We didn't talk about the scariest thing that he's ever done in his life, which wasn't crawling to the top of a roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland. It was actually performing with the Newfoundland Shakespeare Company. We didn't talk about about Jean Chrétien or George W. Bush or Stockwell Day or any of the politicians that he satirized and worked with over the years. There is so much more in the book. Check it out. Great Christmas gift. It's called Talking to Canadians. The author is Rick Mercer. Big thanks to him. But of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>